Welcome to the Spark Partners Podcast. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. And we're Spark Partners. Go to sparkpartners.com for more information on how we can help your business grow. So Adam, today I want to talk about um, something that I went through back when I ran my company as Terra. So uh, we were a service-based company. We'd go in and, and do product development for our customers. And that would range from entrepreneurs that had an idea all the way up to big companies like Raytheon and Ventana Medical and so forth. And I realized about, and I ran this company for about seven years, eight years roughly. And I realized about in the middle of it that I wanted to shift over and have our own products and actually be able to launch a new product. And there was many of them that came and went. And one of the things that I did, and I, I already know the answer, this is why I'm obviously setting it up, but we had a hard time with our resources. I, I had about 15 employees at the time, and uh, most of them were engineers. Uh, most of them were, were billing hours for other projects. And I remember one of my guys at the time, his name's Chris. I said, hey, Chris, I, this, we have a cool project. I want you to, to spend uh, half a day on it every day of the week, and let's get this thing to market. Well, what happened after a month and a half of this, we went and we looked at what had been done, and it was abysmal how little had been done. And I said, Chris, what's going on here? And he said, well, listen, I just got distracted. I got involved with other projects. You know, the engineering manager said that this, was a, this other thing was a priority, so I had to shift my resources. So that brought me to this conversation today, and, and I want to get your thoughts on, on the way we see uh, allocation and resource allocation planning. So I'll open up to you, Adam. Well, one of the things, if you look at a company like Tesla or Amazon, and you think to yourself, how does a company become that big, that fast, that successful? And one of the things you have to give credit to the CEO for is resource allocation being good at figuring out where to put time, people, and money so that you can grow the business very successfully. And um, that's something I don't think people spend enough of their energy thinking about. Like, where am I allocating my resources? Where am I having people do things? Often we give somebody a task and it's their job and they just go about doing that job and we don't really review it very often. We don't think about it too often. And so they get admired or enmeshed in in fulfilling the requirements of that job, and they'll chase that perhaps much further than it needs to be chased, right? And so the resource gets tied up in doing something. I've never walked into a business of any size, whether it was as you had 15 employees or much, much bigger, say a big, big company, a Fortune 500 company, and said, and, and I've never walked into one where they said, you know what, we have about 5% of our workforce sitting around with nothing to do, and we wish you would help us find a way to grow. That never happens. Everybody's always busy all the time, right? They dedicate themselves all day long to what they need to do. And so what we have to do as leaders is start to realize that we're not going to grow unless we dedicate resources to growth projects. It starts there. Or we're going to allocate those resources to the, peop to the place where we need to get growth. Because if we don't, you won't grow. If you keep doing the same thing all the time with the same resources, you're not going to get better results, right? So in your case, for example, one of the big faults that we see is we'll often say, hey, Jimmy, or hey, Sarah, 
you're really good and I need you to put some of your energy into this project. So what I'd like you to do is you said put half a day onto it every day or maybe spend a day a week on it or something like that. That never works. It never works because there's always something with that first half of the day that didn't get done, right? And so, yes. like, it, you know, why don't I just go ahead on Tuesday and finish that and then I'll work all day Wednesday on the new thing. And then Wednesday you come in and, oh my, there's new stuff on the desk. So we start with the new stuff and we never get, and you just never get to that new project. You never get to that new opportunity, right? And then as you said, his boss will come along and his boss is like, like he's wanting to get the current business to be, you know, all the things he wants done. So I'll say, well, you know, Jimmy, why are you working on that? I need you to take care of this. And so the pull of the organization is towards working on the stuff they've always done. And this is why we focus so much on dedicating resources to growth projects, right? You have to sit down and say, this is your job, your responsibility. And this is the thing you're going to do is you're going to work on this growth project. And we have to make sure the resource is delegated in terms of people, make sure they have some money to get the job done, right? If they need to go get right. data, if they need to get uh, interviews, uh, you know, things that they might need, might need to travel to get some information, to learn about the marketplace, talk to customers. We need to make sure that there's money there for them. So we have to make sure that, and then who they report to. Because if you, if you do all of that, but you still have Jimmy report to the same head of engineering, well, he's just going to constantly be asking Jimmy to work on the other stuff, right? Even if Jimmy's supposed to be dedicated to the new project, the head of engineering is going to keep saying, I want you to take care of this, take care of that. And by the way, remember who gives you your review at the end of the year. So if yeah, you it's, a, it's a bit of a power play. play. Yeah, yeah. If you do what Manny said, he may be the CEO, but I'm the one who does your review. Right. So we have to think about that in terms of he's got to be dedicated. He's got to have some resources and you got to have them reporting the right way to the right at the right place or else it's just not going to work out. Yeah. And so in our course, we talk about the five M's and, and you touched on them. Um, the mission, you know, what are you what are you going to be doing? Uh, the metrics, how are you going to measure them? The management, both sides, who's going to manage the project, but who's going to manage the manager of the project? Right. Um, the money, make sure you're well capitalized. And then the moat, you got to protect that person. Yep. And what I, you know, now looking back, right, um, I, I basically didn't, the mission was clear at the time. The metrics were cloudy. And, you know, that as you go down the way, it gets more and more and more cloudy. Uh, and then the, uh, the management didn't change at all. And the money was, was kind of there, but it wasn't because we were, obviously this person was dedicated on other projects. And then the moat was non-existent. Yeah. It was just, uh, it was an open field. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's, uh, you know, by way of thinking about some big companies, go back to Bezos and think about where people, how people think about their careers. In a traditional organization, and for many years, what we've told people is you advance up in the big part of the company. So if you wanted to be successful, you would say, where are the primary, what's the big revenue generator of the company? What's the big cash generator of the company? You get into that part of the company, you try to work your way to the top. And so then what happens is they say, well, whoever's running that big part of the company, that that's the person who gets to ascend eventually to the CEO position. And uh, that's what they did, for example, at GE. And that's how you got MLP who ended up in the CEO's role and destroyed the company, as we've talked about in a previous podcast. But now look at what happened at, at Amazon. When Bezos left, 
The person who took over was the person who was running AWS, Amazon Web Services, the digital part of the business. So by far and away, you would call Amazon a retailer. The, the core, to the extent of the business, is all about spying, selling goods. It's a retail business. But what Bezos did was he took his best person and his best person he put into AWS because that's the really big growth engine. That's the digitization and that's the technology wing of the company. And it's all that technology and digitization work that has made Amazon what it is as a retailer. So his best resources he kept putting into this right at the edge of something new. How do we get to something new? And this person figured out how to grow and create you know, the world's biggest cloud services company, which is AWS. And that's how he got to the top of the company. And that's what I think we need to try to help people understand. Is if you're a manager or a director out there in a, corp in a corporation or in a business and you're doing something like the fellow Chris you talked about, what you really need to do is think hard about how am I going to really shine in the corporation? In Chris's case, he ended up making you, the CEO, not happy because he didn't do what you asked him to do. He didn't make progress on the new stuff. So you as a CEO were not happy. So now his boss could give him a rave review, but he's not very likely to do well in the company. You know, you're going to be like, hey, when I asked Chris to work on this, he was easily diverted. He was easily sent down these other roads. And I wouldn't put Chris back on that project again. What Chris should have realized is, hey, the CEO has asked me to do this project. It's a project to grow the company. It could be one of the most important things that our company does over the next year. What I need to do is actually the opposite of what my boss is telling me to do. I need to put much energy as possible on the thing Manny asked for. And to that extent, he probably should have gone into his boss and said, listen, I want you to leave me alone. Quit doing this. I need to do what Manny wants me to do. Because his career is going to be far more affected by his ability to succeed in developing the new thing. Like the guy who ended up as CEO of Amazon, the guy who develops the new thing. And so this is one of the things about resource allocation and our time and what we do with our time. We do have the tendency to get into a rut of spending our time solving problems rather than figuring out what is the next thing we're going to do. But the way you really add value in your life, the way you add value to your business, whether at any level, is by figuring out what's that next thing we can do that can really help it to be more successful. You know, how can I take advantage of some new technology, some new business practices, some new things that our customers are doing? How can I come up with new products to sell, new services, new solutions? How can I think about the next thing to do rather than optimizing the thing we've always done? Yeah, and that brings us to another topic that we can discuss and we've discussed a little bit during some of our podcasts but that's the idea of asking permission yeah and and really uh as a as a ceo i was able to grow my company quickly but i made lots of mistakes and uh looking backwards of course you know what to say about hindsight being 2020 now i realize some things that i could have done better and uh having the the chance to do it now i, I would and that's a bit of the beauty of kind of life and how we were able to look at what other people have done, both in success and in failure and, and adapt it to what we're doing. And I'm just talking more about the course here. If you're able to see what others have done and make adjustments so you don't fall in the same pitfalls. And so question for you, let's talk about the, the case studies that were the foundation for the course. I'm, I'm curious about sort of what led to that uh, realization of that amount of data and, and, you know, looking at what makes a company successful and 
or fail. Well, of course, when I started the, the work in the 90s, the, 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 the history of, of business education and doing research in business was to pull financial data. And so there was a lot of information available around publicly traded companies. Um, a lot of, you know, McKinsey Corporate Database had the financial information of every um, publicly traded company since 1900. Uh, and that included all the footnotes and all the addendums in the annual reports and all that sort of thing. And people had scoured through that for a very, very long time. But one of the things that was very clear was that analysis of the numbers was not yielding a, any insight as to why companies succeeded or failed. You know, we had that, that, that drum, those numbers had been beaten and beaten and beaten by people in academia, and yet it wasn't producing any better results. So what we realized was we had to do more of a longitudinal study where we'd sit down and say, let's take and dissect what went wrong, what went right or went wrong in, the, in a company. So let's take, for example, AM Multigraphics. It was one of the ones I wrote about in the book, Create Marketplace Disruption. There was a company who had um, in actually developed, um, been a leader in small offset presses, but the small offset press business was being replaced by xerography. And at a point then, it was the xerography was also being addressed by people with printers in their offices, right? So you sit and say, okay, here was the leader in small offset presses. When xerographic technology came along, why didn't they go, why weren't they Xerox? And when Xerox developed the technology, these company AM, they had all the resources. I mean, they had Salesforce and service people and all that. They could have converted that into Xerography and they could have easily beaten Xerox after Xerox demonstrated that the technology worked and people had a, had a use for it. But they didn't do it. So we said, well, why not? And we actually got into saying, going down to talking to the level of the individuals and saying what was going on in the organization from the CEO to the CFO down to the people running the service business, running the sales organization, running each piece of the organization to say how, what were, what were you doing? What were the decisions you made and how did you make them? And we took each one of those and worked it down. So we'd take like the, the, the company, then we'd take the division, say presses and we'd take su supplies and we'd take the service organization and work all those down to say how they were making their decisions. And so we did that over the course of about seven years, collecting this data. And, and it was really valuable because it, it was a way of looking at these problems that nobody had really done before. Nobody started saying, we're taking aggregate a whole lot of case studies. People would say, well, here's one case study. And that was very like the Harvard Business School approach. Here's a case study on what happened in a company. But to try to look across, you know, a thousand companies and a thousand organizations and say, what was the pattern that developed? It's something that not very many, almost nobody had ever done. It was an approach that hadn't been used before. And it was one that was outside of academia. When I tried to use it to apply for a PhD, I was told that it didn't fit the criteria of a PhD because it was, it was longitudinal, meaning wide rather than deep. But the pattern that emerged was that consistently people would make decisions to try to defend the business they had before they would make the decisions to do something new. So, for example, um, the sales force was selling presses, right? And they were and they were selling presses, or they're selling the supplies that went on the presses. Two two different organizations in sales. And you come along, you say, here's, and they're saying our number one threat is xerography. And so that means selling Xerox machines, and it means selling uh, toner, basically, for Xerox machines and service for, okay, well, we've got those three organizations. We should be able to now go do that. But what would happen was the sales guy would walk in to, with his, to sell these products, and then the guy in the print shop would say, well, I need you know talk to you about my printing supplies. And say, well, here's a, I've got a replacement for the Xerox machine, and here you could get this machine from us. 
And the printer would say, well, you know what? I don't really like that. That, you know, it's the secretary is up on the third floor using the Xerox machine. And so let's talk some more about the press. And the sales guys quickly figured out that the, the Xerox machine, if they really went to promote it, still was, wasn't going to get them the commissions that they were getting by selling the printers. And the people in service realized that you, know, you could sell ink and you could sell cleaners. And there's all this, this panoply of products for, serve, for, for using uh, a, a printing press. But basically, if you were in the Xerox game, all you sold was toner. So they were like, well, we're not going to sell nearly as much toner as we sell this other stuff. So let's kind of keep those presses running as long as possible. And the guys in service said the same thing. So the whole organization, every, independently, starts making decisions to preserve the base, to defend what they have. And this was the pattern that we'd see across all kinds of these businesses was this real strong sense of, I want to preserve what I have and do that first. Protect the mothership was another phrase we'd hear a lot of times, rather than going and investing in the thing that needed to happen new. And in retrospect, what we know is they should have set up a whole separate unit to sell xerography. They should have given them their own resources, and they should have put them in competition with the, off, the, the, with the offset press people. They should have yeah. let one division beat the heck out of the other one and drive it out of business. But That's you know, crazy, though. I mean, if you think about some of the things we talk about, that is ridiculous, unconventional wisdom. <laughs> because if you think about uh, the gong that, that gongs all the time in business, business school and all that about focusing on your core and all that. And I was actually told that exact line of, uh, well, we'll just say that exact line. Uh, when I was toward the tail end of, of having my company, they were like, we got to focus on your core. Jim Collins was always big on that. Good to great, built to last. Focus on your core. Yeah, but it didn't serve me. It didn't serve me because I was focused on something that was inherently flawed. And if, it, if I would have sort of done what I wanted to do, which was launch these new businesses, I, I, it would have been a different ending to the story. I'm, you know, I'm glad it unfolded the way it did. Uh, otherwise, you and I wouldn't be working together. But uh, nonetheless, um, it's hard to do when you're, when you're, at the cap, when you're the captain of that ship. Yeah. And all you all you ever know is the sea. And somebody says, hey, man, I've got this new uh, airship that's going to take you to the to the skies. You don't want to leave the damn sea because that's all you know. But then you have to realize, you know, if Netflix had not put all of its money into streaming, they'd still be out there trying to deliver DVDs to your doorstep. Right. And there would be no Netflix as we know it today. You know, they would have kept, you know, trying to defend that physical distribution system of DVDs or VHS tapes sent to your home, which they were excelled at and had used to destroy Blockbuster. But they had to shift their resources, they had to re reallocate, you know, to the new thing. And the new thing was streaming. And then as streaming got popular and it became actually generic to where anybody could stream, you know, of course, we've got a number of streamers now, but early on we saw Comcast and DirecTV and a lot of those kinds of people getting into the business. But we... We definitely knew streaming was there and it was getting low cost. Once again, the resource allocation now shifted from technology on streaming to content production, right? So they moved the headquarters now to Burbank and, the, and they said, okay, what we're going to do is put our resources into content creation. And they became the company that now has all these hit shows that are winning all of these Golden Globes and Academy Awards and really upsetting the whole filmmaking industry because of the way they're going about distribution of the product. And it's upsetting a lot of the old guard. 
But but we wouldn't have that. Netflix wouldn't be Netflix if they had protected the core, defended the base, protected the mothership. If they had been thinking that way at all, they would have ended up like Sears. You know, Sears, you know, they started out as a mail order catalog. Then they became stores and then the stores were very successful. They shut down the mail order catalog. The Internet comes along and you would have thought the easiest thing in the world should be to say, hey, this is just the next new mail order catalog, right? And it's called the Internet. And let's go down that road. But instead, they were very worried about defending the basement, the store. They said, well, people buy online. They won't buy in the store. And we've got all these stores and the stores are full of people and merchandise. And we got rent and leases we have to take care of. And so they just refused to invest in this new thing, which they had all the resources to do. And that meant that what did they, they became irrelevant, right? And now Sears is just, they're nobody, despite having been the world's largest retailer not that long ago. So it, how we invest our resources becomes one of the most crucial decisions that we make. And we tend to be very incremental about it, kind of thinking day to day, week to week, in the case of Chris that worked for you, hour by hour, incrementally thinking about where he was going to put his resources. And instead of thinking really much bigger picture about, well, where do I need to make my organization go? You know, if you were running a college 10 years ago, you had to sit back and say, wait a minute, this is all going to go online. I'm going to have to do this stuff. And you would have de-invested in traditional professors, de-invested in buildings, de-invested, you know, really stop spending money. When I say de-invest, it's kind of like defund the police. <laughs> I'm sorry. But it really means don't spend so much money on that. Rob that money. Pull it back. Say you're not going to, not going to spend money on the traditional thing so that you can put money in the new thing. So like I said, nobody's got a lot of people sitting around with nothing to do. So you have to take them away. You have to say, wait a minute, you're spending. We don't need to spend so much in that area. We need to spend it in this area. Pull people into the new area. Dedicate them. Take money from the old area. Dedicate it to the new. That's what we have to do. And uh, we just, you know, a lot of people aren't particularly good at it. In their planning system, they'll say, I've got all this data about my customers, what I sell, and you know, I can really study my past to try to figure out how to optimize what I've gotten. How do I know what the future is going to be? I don't have the data on the future. And that's why you have to say, well, you don't have data on the future, but you can project trends and you can do scenario planning and it can be effective because when we look at companies like Netflix and Amazon and uh, 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 Tesla, you know, these are people, these are companies built on forecasts. You know, they're built on scenarios. They're not built on looking at the past. Yep, very true. Uh, I, I'm, so uh, you know that I'm in Arizona and uh, the, the university, the Arizona, Arizona State University is fast becoming one of the largest universities in the U.S. Primarily because the, the CEO and president, see, I said CEO, because he actually runs that like a business. This is why they've been so successful. And the CEO and president of the university uh, about eight years ago made the decision to, to double their enrollment online and online only. And so again, like you said, everybody's looking at how am I gonna acquire more land to build more buildings to house more students. He's looking at it, okay, how am I gonna get more students kind of work backwards? How yeah. am I gonna go get more students? Okay, well, land is kind of scarce, so why don't I offer completely online platforms and, um, and just brilliant in his strategy. And like I said, it's fast becoming the largest university in the, in the U.S. 
There was um, uh, today, uh, Jamie Dimon released a, uh, his annual letter to shareholders, which has become 65 pages long. I think he envisions himself as the next, um, um, who's the guy who runs Berkshire Hathaway? Um, come on, help me out here. Um, he envisions himself as that next person. So he's, anyway, he wrote this letter and he said that he thinks that after the pandemic, um, they will only need seats for 60 out of 100 people that work for J.P. Morgan Chase. Now think about that. You know, it's taken him a while to get to this position. He runs a big organization. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing you have to sit there and say, wait a minute, if I only going to need 60 seats for every 100 employees, think of the real estate implications that has for a J.P. Morgan Chase, right? He, he, Jamie Dimon's sitting there saying, okay, the big buildings, headquarters buildings, centralized banking, branches, all these things are going to be far, far less necessary. And so that's, that's looking at and saying, use the future scenario, what's going to happen out there to drive what you're going to do as decisions today. You know, people aren't going to go back to working the way they used to work. We now have gotten, you know, people are in uh, new homes where they have at-home offices that they didn't have before. Uh, people are saying, I'm far more productive, I don't lose commute time. People are saying, I'm far more productive. I can work asynchronously with these Zoom calls and communications rather than you know, the time I used to just sit in meetings you know, doodling on my pad because I was forced to sit in the meeting. Um, those, those changes are permanent. And we have to use those sorts of looks into the future to say, how am I going to manage my resources? In his case, he's saying, I'm going to need a far, a JP Morgan Chase will need far less real estate than it's needed. And that's where we have to sit there and think about, you know, what of our businesses? What, what, what will we need in the future? What will our employees need? What kinds of employees will we need? Where will they work? How will they work? Do I, uh, what, where will I do my supply chains, right? How, where do I want my service, my supply, my vendors to, to be located? You know, is it, is it a close supply chain worth more or a cheap supply chain that's far away and hard to manage? You know, we, we see now we've had three great shocks to the supply chain in the last few years. We had the tsunami that hit Japan that, that destroyed a number of container ships out at sea, and um, that caused a big disruption in the supply chain. Then we had the pandemic, which hit, caused a major disruption in the supply chain. And then recently we had the, the ship that blocked the Suez Canal and shut it down for eight days. Another big change to the supply, uh, a shock to the supply chain. Those sorts of shocks, what we now can see is that those are impossible to eliminate. Weather is weather. Climate change is probably going to make the weather more severe. Um, we can see that these impacts, like the pandemic, these things are they, they happen, and they and there's no way you're going to stop them from happening. So we have to, in our supply chains, start saying, wait a minute, is having the cheapest supply chain the best way to go, or is having one that I can be is more reliable, more sustainable, a better way to do business? Right. So learn from these trends in terms of thinking about how we're going to make our business decisions so that we resource things accurately. We might want to put a little more energy into a nearby vendor because it improves our reliability rather than just working with somebody offshore that's, you know, thousands of miles away and maybe doesn't care that much about my business. They're just, you know, making parts at a low price. Manny, I can't hear you at all. Sorry about that. Uh, among the top one or two reasons why people don't actually align their business with trends, and they, they know it's coming, you know, they, they're standing on the damn rail line and they can see the light of the train coming towards them. And the reason they don't move is comfort. <laughs> they don't want to be uncomfortable. Right.
if you are a company and you, you're producing a product and your sales are going down, they're dwindling, and you, you see that you are going to be eventually be put out of business, you don't move because you don't want to move because it's nice and comfortable to be sitting where you are. But if you don't move, you're going to be run over by that train. And, Interestingly, um, in my career, I've had a number of instances where somebody would be in a meeting and they would say, okay, um, my, my business is at this state and what I would like, you know, to say they're a regional head of a business or something, and say, I would like to increase my resources by one, 100. And if I had that increase of 100, then I can you know, do a 10% improvement in my sales. And the, somebody in the room would sit back and say, you know what, you've been doing really well. I would like to give you 1,000, not 100, 1,000. And the person would sit there and they'd think about it for a minute and say, y y I, I don't want the money. <laughs> but think about that. This happens to us kind of regularly. It's sort of like, I don't want the money because I don't know what I would do with that, right? Right now I have a whole bunch of knowns and a bunch of givens. And I've got a plan for what I would do if you give me a hundred. But if you gave me a thousand, I have to walk into the world of the unknown. The givens all go away. Now I have far more latitude to do far more things. And I have to expand my universe in the way I think. And Oh, that just gets so hard. And I really don't want to think that hard. <laughs> I don't want to work that hard. And so what do I, you know, what, what am I going to do? But I see this happen all the time in business, right? Somebody has the opportunity for big expansion. But they say, well, you know what, I, I, I'm uncomfortable, as you say. I'm uncomfortable because yeah. now, now I can't rely on the givens. I can't rely on the knowns. I have to go into a world in which the givens aren't given anymore because I have the opportunity to do so much more. Yeah, and when you get a person that is, is their personality, their very way of being is they would be excited and ecstatic to be given that 10x opportunity. That's who you want in that position, not the person who right. is going to be comfortable with the 100 people. Right. So, right. I mean, there's many famous stories that Jack Welch was very good at that. He would have a he was always pushing his businesses to grow, grow, grow. Jack was a growth oriented sort of a leader at General Electric, Jack Welch. And he would push him and say, you know, what can we do to be, you know, what company could we buy? What are your top three acquisition candidates so we could double your revenue? What kind of a, what, what international marketplace could we move into next to double your revenue? And if you couldn't just snap off answers to those questions, he'd just dump the business. He'd say, okay, that leadership team, they're just stuck. They don't know what to do. And if, they're not gonna, if they don't have a plan to double their business in the next three years, then they're not ready to execute on that plan. Then I don't need them. And he built you know, just a very powerful, dynamic organization. And that's the way I think we all have to be sitting there thinking. You know, we might be you know, desperate for, for you know, crumbs, but if somebody comes along and wants to offer us a banquet, we have to be ready to accept that banquet. We have to be ready to say, yeah. listen, what I, what's, I'm ready to go. Um, I was fortunate I got accepted to the Harvard Business School, and I was thrilled to get in a truck and take what few things I had and drive halfway across the United States from Oklahoma to uh, Massachusetts and go to school there. But I knew people who got accepted to good schools who rejected the acceptance to the better school so they could stay closer to home. You know, instead of going to Notre Dame Law School, they selected to go to Kansas University Law School. Now, I'm not saying that KU doesn't have a good law school, 
But what I am saying is that they shut off opportunities. Had they gone to the other law school, they might have opened the door for more judgeships at the federal level. They would open the door to perhaps working for some different firms and in different marketplaces. But they shut that off because they decided they were uncomfortable making that big step to a different place. So again, back to our careers, thinking about what we're going to do. If you're a recent college graduate and you're sitting there and somebody says, you know, where are you going to go to work? It can be the comfort of a business, you know, a place, you know, a location, you know, or it's like, well, well, this is like the next big thing. This is where people, you know, this is where I have the opportunity to grow. This is where I can learn the most and I can get chances to get do more new things, run new businesses. And, and you need to put yourself in those positions to grow. I mean, that's what's really going to take your career somewhere good. And our, and our business needs to be that way as well. You know, uh, one of the things that I think is real questionable is Elon Musk's decision. He's talking about moving the He's moved to San Antonio or Austin, Texas, and he's talking about maybe moving the headquarters there. I think it's um, uh, Oracle or Salesforce moved their headquarters to that part of the country. You have to say, okay, you know, we've spent 50 years making a tech hub out of the uh, San, greater San Francisco Bay Area and, and the peninsula in particular. And now you're going to go somewhere that's not exactly a tech hub, right? San Antonio, Austin, Texas. It, it, so are you going to be able to hire the people? Are you going to be able to get the resources you need? Is that going to turn out to be good or bad? I mean, it's going to be lower cost. That's what they keep saying. And I agree with that. You know, there are certain costs of doing business in California. And you have to pay your employees a lot more because the cost of living is very high in that part of the world. But at the same time, now what happens if you, you, know, you lower your costs, but are you going to be able to stay on that cutting edge of growth? Are you going to be able to get yeah. the good people and get the good vendors and, you know, keep the, the, uh, the success spiraling forward? Yeah, there's lots of... Uh, of- unwritten things that are part of that. Uh, so I'm going to close today's podcast with a, like a question for you uh, about uh, human physiology. I hope you were a pretty good student at that in that school. What's the difference in the human physiology between fear and excitement? Oh, I don't know. I don't Breathing. Know and what is it, Manny? Breathing. Really? When you, that's the only difference. Everything else physiologically is the same. The, the hormones that are in your body, the way your brain is operating, everything is the same except for your breathing. When you are fearful, your breathing is very shallow and you kind of hold it in. When you're excited, same physiology, but you're breathing a lot uh, more air. And so just remember that. And, and the transition is instantaneous. Think about the last time you were on a roller coaster and you're going up the dam, you know, that clicking. And when you're going up about the crest, you are fearful. You are fearful. And then once you start going down that thing at 80 miles an hour, then it it flips to excitement like like a. a, Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, remember that. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things our audience needs to remember is that we spend a lot of time and energy in the courseware, Think Innovation, helping people think through trends, think through opportunities, and how they would resource projects. I think it's one of the most important part of the Think Innovation course is its ability to help you rethink how you're going to allocate your resources so that you can be more successful. There aren't many tools out there that do that. 
to be very honest. There are tools that allow you to track resources, there are, you know, bucket list things you can do, and, and you can you know, put, put stuff into Excel spreadsheets. This really does get you into where do I want to put my resources and how do I resource for growth. So I think that that's one of the most powerful parts of the tool, Think Innovation, and people should really consider that strongly when they're trying to figure out how they want to do their planning. Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time, Adam. Uh, good luck with everything, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one, Manny. Take care. Bye-bye.